we do turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. And uh, just just dawned on me. We're going to do a little experiment this morning. I said on Facebook, be careful. I've been out of the pulpit for two weeks. Buckle up. So buckle up, all right? I'm going to change it. Are you ready for this? <gasps> no, not change. Um, for the last six months, I've came, stood right here and read scripture. This morning's scripture passage is two verses, and so we're going to read it together, all right? I'm going to point your attention to the screens right over here. I want to invite you to join me in reading this passage that comes to us from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Let's read it together. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here's the good news about reading a scripture passage like that out loud. Now you're all on the hook. You've read it. You know what God's word says. Because we've just spent some time doing it together. Speaking it forth has a tremendous amount of power. And, uh, and so I hope you'll turn to that passage again in the coming week. This morning we're starting a new series that uh, I've just very simply entitled, Nope. Nope. Nothing? Not, not at all. Not, not. Thanks, thanks. We're going to be exploring several different cliches or statements that are often attributed to God or the Bible or our faith. These statements, they sound really good um, and, and sometimes are helpful, but they're not actually from God. They're not from the Bible. They're not actually a part of our faith. One author calls them half-truths, statements that are almost right, but are off just enough to do some damage. And I say damage because many of these half-truths, uh, well, they cause a lot of pain. On the outside, they, outside, they might make you feel good, but deep within, some of these statements tear away and they can create some really bad narratives, stories that guide our lives. My mom used to say, Jimmy, God hates a liar, so don't you ever lie to me. Now, while lying is certainly not a good thing, does God really hate a liar? Well, the basic answer to that is, nope. And let me tell you why. <laughs> That's essentially what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks together. Bad narratives or bad stories are one of the biggest issues that I find most Christians have to deal with. Week in and week out, I talk to people who come into my office and they're holding on to bad stories. Stories that really don't, they really don't have to hold on to. Uh, let me share one with you. When I was in sixth grade, we got a phone call that changed the very fabric of our lives. My uncle and my aunt they lived in the Florida Keys. They were missionaries there, led a very successful ministry that was bringing change to a lot of lives. My uncle and aunt, they were heroes of mine. Um, my aunt was the holiest person I knew. She also just kind of oozed life and joy wherever she went. You could be with her for four minutes and you'd find yourself smiling. It's just what she brought with her. She was the sweetest person I had ever known and I was convinced because of the way she lived her life, that, that she and God were best buds, joined at the hip. 
Phone call that day was from my uncle, and for the longest time, all I knew is there was bad news. My grandmother cried, my mom cried, even my old crusty Marine Corps dad cried. I was told that my aunt had been diagnosed with colon cancer and would have to have surgery at the age of 33. Couldn't really understand the drama that was unfolding around me because, quite frankly, for me, my aunt was so much like Jesus that I was convinced that she was going to be healed. Fine, no problem, let's move on. I knew this is the kind of holy person and what this kind of holy person uh, would receive. It's how it worked. My aunt and uncle fought that cancer for two years until she finally, with no physical fight left, passed away. After that phone call and the tears that accompanied with it, we piled in the van and we drove from St. Petersburg to the Keys. And the entire way, I have to tell you, I was still convinced that this holy woman who could pray the paint off of a wall was gonna be okay. She had prayed for people's healings over the course of her life, and they had been healed. I knew she was going to be all right, but it was at the actual funeral where I learned that she had been cremated, and I was devastated. The service was beautiful. The church was filled with people from all over the country whom she had touched. We called it a homecoming celebration of life, but to be honest, all I could do the entire time was sit there hurt, lost. Eventually, the tears started to come. At the end of the service, a woman came up to myself, my little cousin, and she said, well, I wish she had just a little more faith, for God surely would have healed her then. Another family member said, well, I guess God just needed her more than we did. He just needed another angel up in heaven. When I got back to school, a teacher who was very dear to me saw my grades starting to slip, and she came over to me and she said, Jim, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. You're going to be okay. She and these other people meant to encourage and invite to a deep level of trust that God was with us, but it didn't do any of that. Instead, it filled me with deep shame. Couldn't focus. There were times where I felt so alone and isolated um, that the quiet was crushing on me. God was supposed to be close to me, but the hymns that I loved to sing were pointless and Church felt like a pretty big waste of time, quite frankly. I was not okay. Began to have some pretty deep questions around those statements that were shared over me. They made me scared of God. Why would I want to get close to a God who takes us away from loved ones? God surely didn't need my aunt more than my little cousins did, did he? Was not having faith a, a punishment? Was death like getting sent to your room? My questions deepened. Was, was cancer God's will? Was a woman in her mid-30s with two young children destined to suffer the way she did? How was I supposed to make it through when so much was lost? For me, those questions became part of my narrative. They became my story about God, who God was, who I was, and what life was really about. And I would venture to guess that some of us in this room have heard statements just like those. Can I let you in on a really important secret that shouldn't be a secret? The God that I met when my aunt died, that's not our God. That's not our God. The statements that I heard, some were half-truths, some were just downright lies. The statements or the promises that God won't give you more than you can handle isn't found in the Bible. And the pain that comes with a statement, a cliche, a bumper sticker theology like that, 
is not something the child of an abundant life-giving God needs to live with. But it sounds like it comes from Scripture, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of comforting, right? Well, the closest thing we have to that painful little platitude comes to us from the Scripture passage that you all just joined me reading a minute ago. Let's hear it again. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Did you hear what it doesn't say? Exactly. It doesn't say God won't give you more than you can handle. It does say something completely different, and it's saying something different to a very different group of people in a very different context. Now, the word context matters mightily, beloved of God. A pastor in Canada once said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Your pastor says this, a text of scripture without a context is a way to say whatever you want the scriptures to say. See, these holy scriptures were written to a particular people at a particular time. They speak to us, yes, thank God. But I have found these, these, these words speak with even more focus when we enter into the world as best we can of the original readers. The context of this scripture is the city of Corinth. Massively important city during the time of the early church. It was wealthy. It was powerful. It was the place uh, anyone who was anybody wanted to be. While Rome was the capital, Corinth was the metropolitan mecca of the area. A modern, at the time, modern-day New York City for the empire. You could call it the Big Olive if you wanted to. To be a... Some of you will get that later on. It's okay. <laughs> to be a Corinthian carried a certain designation, it carried a prestige, but it also carried a whole lot of baggage. See, in other parts of the empire, to live like a Corinthian, well, that was to live a life of extreme idolatry, have a very open sexual ethic. In fact, it was those two things that were regularly paired together in Corinth. To worship the gods there was to engage in practices that would make most of Vegas blush. And in the midst of that mess, a growing church is making a huge impact. Paul spends most of his time in Corinth carrying with him this fatherly responsibility for their formation. And his letters are invitations to deepen faith, to live worthily of the good news of Jesus. He writes to correct teachings and offer instructions for, for faithful living. He writes to challenge the cultural norms and say, hey, let's live like Jesus did. See, there's a misconception in the Corinthian church that Paul directly has to confront, and he does it over and over again in two letters that we have in our scriptures. He had to write about it several times to them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says very clearly that just because we're believers and have the promise of eternity before us, suffering does happen. I'm paraphrasing, but he says to the believers routinely, look, bad stuff happens. And being a Christian does not remove the bad stuff. Paul would know. He had gone through every possible bad thing you could think of. Even at one point said that he was at the place where he just wanted to die. Paul was regularly at the point of can't handle no more. And Paul never says, well, a little more faith or hang on there because God won't give me more than I can handle. He never goes there. 
Instead, he encourages and he, he yearns to be with his friends and he begs for people to visit him while he's in prison and he longs for companionships when dear friends have abandoned him and, and when others were killed for their faith. So what is Paul saying in this passage that, that does cause so much confusion for us? Well, it starts with that way of life. As Jesus people, we do life differently than the Corinthian people. To the Corinthians, his encouragement is to embrace this new life, to choose to be careful not to fall into temptation. He tells them that temptations are different, for, no different for them than for anybody else. Temptations come to everybody, and so be aware. Be, a, be aware and be ready for the ways that God will give you to get out of those temptations. It's in the midst of the temptations that God will not allow them to be, to, to be more than they can stand. And that they will have a way out. Now, temptations are invitations to do something that we know is wrong or harmful to ourselves or to somebody else. And notice, unlike that half-truth of God giving us bad things, God isn't tempting anybody. The letter of James actually clears up the confusion here. James says, remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. I love J.B. Phillips. He says, a person must not say when he is tempted, God is tempting me, for God has no dealings with evil and does not himself tempt anyone. Isn't that great? James goes on to say, no, a man's temptation is due to the pull of their own inward desires, which can be enormously attractive. His own desires take hold of him, and that produces sin, and sin in the long run means death. Make no mistake about that, family of mine. Not sure about you, but I don't need any help being tempted. Anybody with me? I am perfectly capable of finding temptations on my own. I know I should drink more water and eat more rabbit food, but you know what? Chocolate and cookies are just too good. And they are always within reach. The temptations, they come to the follower of Jesus and they come to the, the pagan. They, that's part of life. But the next statement in Paul's letter is often what gives so much hope and part of our problem. Paul says about these temptations, God's faithful. Won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out. When I'm fighting temptations, it's generally a case that there are about 10 different ways out. It isn't that God isn't faithful in providing a way to stop but that I so often ignore the help. See, this passage isn't about suffering or pain or loss. It's about dealing with the temptation to sin in the context of the church at Corinth, standing up to the temptations of worshiping other gods and a sexual ethic that denies the goodness of God's gift of sexuality. Tempted to find your worth in something or someone other than God, God will make a way. Struggling in a society that is drenched in sexual confusion, God has a better way. But wait, Jim, isn't it true that God will still make a way when there seems to be no way? About the time my Aunt Connie passed away, Don Moen was singing uh, the song, God Will Make a Way When There Is No Way. I still love that song. I listened to it just yesterday. You listened to it this morning. It was played during the offertory, thanks to James. God does work in ways we can't say. See, he will be a guide. He does hold us close to his side. But notice who the focus is on those promises. In the cliche, God won't give me more than I can handle. It's all about who? Me. What I can handle. The platitude is not about God. It's about you and me. Oh, and our little cliches 
Who gives the actual problem there? God does. Well, for Paul, the temptations come as a result of sinful, broken world. And the half-truth, it's God giving the problem. Anybody have a problem with that? If you're a good Methodist, you better. Because back to James, God has no dealings with evil. But Jim, we read about God bringing disaster and judgment throughout the Bible. Isn't God causing bad stuff? Short answer, good grief. Does God allow pain and suffering to happen? Yes. Why? I don't know. It's a big question. I'm sure I'm going to walk right up and say, hey, God, when I get to the other side of glory. But a lot of the pain and suffering happens not because God is up in heaven willing some kind of cosmic game of make creation suffer. That's more like ancient Rome and ancient Greek gods. No, this God enters into our hurt enters into your pain and suffering and loss and brokenness. This God works amazing good in the midst of such sin. This God was so tore up by our choice to be his enemy that he entered into the story, took the punishment and consequences of our sin. Oh no, beloved, God doesn't give us this brokenness. God doesn't slide cancer into a 33-year-old woman with two small boys and a husband who would never fully recover from her loss. God doesn't give us problems to help us pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, make us prove how awesome we are to him and to everyone around us. The trials of life that God allows in our lives are set up, aren't set up to see if we can make it, because guess what? We can't. They are allowed in our lives to remind us just how powerless we are, though. The trials, tests, brokenness of life invite us to remember that God knows our hurt and God invites us to see that in the midst of it all, he's with us. We can't go through it on our own. We're not wired to handle it that way. We're built to need help. Look at the person next to you. You're built to need them. Scary, isn't it? (laughs) We're built to need the help of the God who moved into the neighborhood We're built to need the help of a family that we're a part of. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, I have often had more bad stuff happen that is way beyond me. He regularly couldn't happen that it was happening to him. But what he did have in the midst of every bit of it is the same thing that you and I have, a God of the universe who stands right in the midst of it, even when, especially when, we can't see God. That bumper sticker cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle, has done a lot of damage in the life of a lot of people. It's ingrained some terribly false narratives. It's invited warped visions of God and life. It's made God a pretty cruel deity, quite frankly. It's told a lot of people that seeking help, that admitting I've reached the end of my rope is a lack of faith in God. It's created guilt and shame. It's removed personal responsibility. And it's claimed God's will for a lot of heinous actions in this world. To the Corinthians, Paul is inviting them to seek the answers God gives during temptations. To the Romans, after he lists how many times he's dealt with more than he could bear, Paul says one thing that I think is important to pull out and to remember this morning to hold on to as we leave this place and find all that is around us, especially we're in the deep in the middle of pain and suffering of life. He says, or better asks, what do you think? With God on our side, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? 
And who would dare tangle with God by messing with God, one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because, you ready? Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced, Paul says, that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Beloved, not only does God not give us what we can or can't handle, what does come our way always points us to rely more on him. You can't handle it. Rejoice in that truth, beloved. You can't muster your way through it. You can't pull yourself up by your boots to some Christianity and relying on God as a crutch. Well, they're not entirely wrong, but I got to tell you, I'd rather walk with a crutch than not be able to walk at all. What I needed to hear as an eighth grader going through such unbelievable grief and loss when my aunt died wasn't that God willed this or that we didn't have enough faith for healing, or that God wasn't going to give me more than I could handle. Instead, what I needed to hear, what you may need to hear this morning is this. God will always be with us, will always offer help, will always walk with us through all that we are facing. So instead of thinking about going it alone, seek him. Seek the help of brothers and sisters. Seek the way in the midst of no way, and know that even when he feels distant and lost, God not only sees you, but is with you and loves you with a love that makes even cripples run. Let's pray. Oh, loving God, we thank you for the time that you have given us this morning to explore your word. Lord, there there are these cliches that are so easy to grab a hold of, and maybe at some point they were helpful, but... They're also deeply damaging. And so I pray, God, this morning for your grace to be poured out on your people this morning. For those of us who have felt felt guilt and shame because we just can't handle it, remind us that you can. For those of us who have uh, neglected our, our, our souls, our minds, our body, reaching out for that help because we thought it was a weakness and we weren't trusting you, Give us the courage to make a phone call this week. Invite us into a relationship, even today, that will help us. Even, Lord, if it's someone, a brother and sister next to us, or, or it's, it's some other help that we need, remind us, God, that you have, you've created us for community, created us to experience wholeness, and that comes in a lot of different ways. So remove the guilt, remove the shame, remove the hurt, Help us challenge those bad stories and narratives that we carry and help us instead to see that you are a God who enters in the midst of our hurt, our pain and our loss, our brokenness. You're right there with us, never leaving us and never forsaking us. God, help us to take the truth that you want us to hold on to this morning with us into the world that we live in. We love you, Jesus. 
And we give you thanks, for it is in your precious and holy name that we offer this prayer and our very lives. And all who agreed with it said,